arcs. He has to be the simultaneously most loved and hated person at the same time. Love him, hate him, but you can't not talk about him. Guys, let's be real here. Take a look at this beard and tell me you don't have a strong opinion about it. So in this episode, we are going to be exploring Karl Marx's five best ideas. Hello there, friend. Welcome back to History for Thinkers Notes, a show where we take notes on interesting books, ideas, and history generally. Make sure to follow the show for more episodes just like this one. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. So, first things first, we gotta have a couple of disclaimers just so we all understand what this episode is. So, we're going to be exploring and trying to understand Marx's best ideas and theories, the ones that are closer to reality than others. I think we can all acknowledge that Karl Marx got a lot wrong. His beloved communism failed. I'm sure that's not news to you. But, he still had some legitimate points. Now, I also want to acknowledge that this is impossible to be objective. This is simply Marx's best ideas, according to me, someone that tends to lean right, and someone who is not a Marxist. <laughs> so, you know, take that with a grain of salt. I know for some people that's going to poison the well. But, you know, it is what it is. I like to acknowledge good ideas wherever they come from, even if they come from Karl Marx himself. And the one thing I noticed throughout doing the research for this episode is that Marx is much better at criticizing than he is at creating new systems. He did a really good job of pointing out a lot of the flaws in capitalism and, you know, kind of how it, you know, it makes everyone miserable and creates a lot of suffering and exploitation. And, you know, we'll get to that when we do. But I don't think it's controversial to say that communism is a failed ideology. It has created a lot of suffering, and it is not something that I support or condone in any way, only because it has failed. It has provided millions of people not with happiness, but with suffering. So I don't want anyone to, you know, think that this is some kind of, you know, Marx was right kind of video. That's not what this is. This is acknowledging some of the valid points that Marx made. And last but not least, I want to encourage you guys to leave comments. You might disagree with me. You might agree with me. You might think I'm stupid on some points, right? Let me know in the comment section down below. That is the best way to really force yourself to think about these topics. So, you know, leave those comments and, you know, feel free to attack me. I've got thick skin. You can call me stupid and, you know, I'm not going to eat a whole bunch of pills and end up dead in my bathtub. Not the kind of guy I am. So <laughs> feel free to challenge me. Let me know what your thoughts are. And with that out of the way, let's actually get into the episode. So we're going to be starting with the theory of alienation. Now, to understand, we need a little bit of context. So Marx believed that work was an important part to self-expression, that a key part of who you are is tied to what you do. And I don't think that's a very controversial thing to say or think. But he expanded on it much further, and he argued that industrial capitalism robs us of our fundamental nature, right? A key part of work and stuff that makes, makes us happy. So, of course, the big question is, how does industrial capitalism rob us of this joy? 
While Marx argued that industrial capitalism turned most people into factory workers instead of skilled artisans or farmers or whatever else. And the big problem here is that factory workers, right, they typically do one tedious, repetitive task all day long, typically on an assembly line, right? Just hyper-specialization at one key little thing. And that's really important for being productive, right? Because otherwise, I mean, you just don't get a whole lot done. It takes a lot of time and energy and effort if you have one person building an entire car versus a factory of people who all work on their one little part and they get really good at that and they can pump out way more cars than that one person ever could. Like, that's just the way it goes. Now, Marx expanded much more on his theory of alienation, and he actually identified four different ways that we are alienated in a capitalist economic system. So, hear me out, guys. So, the first way that we are alienated is by our product, what you make. So, as people have come away from their small farms or their small village, right, we don't have a lot of control over what we make, right? You basically take the best paying job that you can get and that's it. But what does that mean for you as the worker? Well, it means that you are going to have to work on something or create something that you probably don't really care about. And when that is the case, right, it's kind of sad, right? You think about, uh, let's just continue with the factory example, right? Let's say that you can get a decent job that pays at a car factory. Well, you may not care about cars, right? Like, it's not your passion to sit around and make, you know, tires for Fords, right? Like, that's just not what you were put on this planet to do. But because of the way capitalism exists, that's pretty much all you can do, right? You can accept other jobs out there, but, you know, if, if this is the best paying one, you're, you're more or less forced to, right? And, most people in most jobs would probably agree that they don't really care about what it is that they work on. This is, you know, this isn't just uh, applying to the lower class people, right? This applies to even upper level pe- people that are elites in society, right? You think about lawyers, right? A lot of them start out where they want to like help poor people and they want to, you know, fix the justice system. And then they realize how little money there is in doing that. So they say, screw this, and they go become corporate lawyers. And then they sit around, you know, making sure that Walmart can squeeze every little penny out of, you know, everyone that they possibly can. That's just the way it goes. The lawyer, even the highly paid, highly respected corporate lawyer, is alienated from what it is that they work on. And that's something, again, it applies to just about everyone that depends on their job to live. So the next way we are alienated is in our production. And this is essentially the way we work. How you work is not determined by you, but by the business owner, right? The bourgeoisie. Marx expanded on this train of thought by claiming that the worker does, quote, not feel content but unhappy, does not develop freely his physical and mental energy, but mortifies his body and ruins his mind. The worker, therefore, only feels himself outside his work, and in his work, feels outside himself. And what he's really saying here is that people are not happy working in the way that other people determine, right? This is one of the key aspects of who we are. Again, 
Work is a big piece of our identity. And if someone is going to tell you that, you know, you have to sit around and answer emails all day and, you know, listen to your coworkers and be respectful and like, you know, just all the nonsense that comes along with having a job, right, that robs us of a key element of who we are. It robs us of our self-expression and our identity and, you know, the opportunity that maybe we could work really hard, but it had to have been something that we cared about. Right. Maybe as, you know, an office worker where you're sitting around answering emails all day, you half ass it. You don't work very hard. But maybe if you were doing something else, right, something that's more intrinsic to who you are as a person, you would probably be working much harder. Right. Because I don't think anyone wants to half ass it. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, it's not fun. Now, the next way that we are alienated is by our human nature. So this idea really comes down to the fact that our work is fundamentally external to who we are. Human beings have a lot of interests and passions and, right, you know, I've experienced this myself. Like, I'm really into history and philosophy and, right, I've got this YouTube channel, but I'm also interested in programming and, you know, sometimes working outside with my hands and, like, you know, building stuff. Right, Humans naturally have just many different interests that we just don't have time for in industrial capitalism. So we are basically forced into this hyper-specialization where we can only get good at this one specific thing, our job, and then we, you know, make our money from that. And then we, we trade that money for, you know, the right to survive, right? We trade that for, you know, our rent or mortgage or bills, everything else, and You know, we're just alienated from our own human nature. We don't get to do what we want to do. And that kind of sucks, right? For specialization. Now, the fourth way that we are alienated is from our other workers, right? I'm sure you've heard it said before, your coworkers are not your friends. They're not there to be buddy-buddy. You know, if you've ever been in one of those positions, people will stab you in the back, you know, really for no good reason at all. And that's just the way it goes. And Marx argued that it's because as wage workers, we are just all competing for the same wage, right? And the fewer other workers there are, the more money, you know, the more bargaining power you have as a worker. So, you know, you're not really friends, you don't have that human connection with your coworkers, And, you know, again, it's just one of the other ways that having a job in modern industrial capitalism robs us of our humanity, according to Marx. And this ultimately gets us to the idea that our jobs are unsatisfying. Most people hate their jobs. And this is as true in the 1800s when Marx was writing this as it is today. I don't know someone that likes their job. Right. Like they, they tolerate it. They go to work every day. They show up and they do what they have to, but no one's really happy to, to have to, right? No one, no one would do their job if they didn't have to. And that is ultimately the way that humans are alienated from other workers, the product of their work, how they work, and, and even their own soul. And that's actually a really good segue for big idea number two here. And this is the idea of forced labor. So Marx argued that workers are coerced into work by the threat of death by deprivation. 
right? Ultimately, if you do not trade your, you know, hours of your life for money to survive, you're going to die. They're going to just let you die out in the streets. You're going to be homeless and that's going to be the end of you. You're not going to live very long. You're not going to even get a chance to have kids or reproduce or anything. Now, Marx elaborated on this by writing, quote, Its alien character emerges clearly in the fact that as soon as no physical or other compulsion exists, labor is shunned like the plague. So the second that you do not have to go to work, the second that you are, you know, maybe you're wealthy enough or maybe, you know, someone else is going to provide for you, the second that you don't have to go to that job, you are not going to. And he says that this is, you know, again, more or less universal. And, you know, think about any the people that you know, the people in your life, right? Maybe your parents or family or friends or even your coworkers. Would they do their job if they did not have to? I really don't think most people would. And apparently neither would Marx. And you see, I think this is one of Marx's best criticisms because, you know, it really does show some of the inconsistencies with these ideas of freedom and human liberty that we're all raised to believe and cherish, right? We love freedom, but fundamentally, we do not have much control over our own lives or our own destinies or anything else. Now, Marx made an interesting comparison when he wrote, quote, In pre-capitalist systems, it was obvious that most people did not control their own destiny. Under feudalism, for instance, serfs had to work for their lords. Capitalism seems different because people are, in theory, free to work for themselves or for others as they choose. Yet, most workers have as little control over their lives as feudal serfs. So, essentially, nothing has really changed since the days of medieval Europe. When you were a serf, when you had to work someone else's land and you were barely given enough to eat and survive. We are still fundamentally existing in the same power structure, right? And as we'll expand on that a little bit further. But I think the forced labor idea really shows itself when we talk about the tech bros, right? Because, you know, we always got to keep it modern, right? Make it relevant. Now, Something I've noticed a lot is, you know, there is programmers who make a lot of money, right? It's a very lucrative field if you can do it. it. It's not easy, but if you can and you can learn, teach yourself, you can really make a lot of money, right? Compared to any other job that you can get. But despite all the money and the prestige that comes with being a programmer, a lot of people leave these jobs, right? There's a very popular trend of people working at Google or Facebook or Amazon. And then, right, they go on YouTube and they say, oh, hey, I'm a former Google employee. This is why I left. And ultimately, it all boils down to they want to do their own thing, right? They don't want to work the same old job, right? Again, it goes back to this idea of forced labor, even the highest paid people, right? And like, let's make no mistake, programmers make a lot of money, right? There's one guy on Twitter who, his, his first name is Daniel, I don't remember his last name, but he worked at Amazon, and the dude made like 500k a year, like he was the cheese at Amazon, right? Imagine making $500,000 a year, and he only worked 40 hours a week, right? Uh, pretty crazy money, that is a great way to, 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 to do it, right? That's the dream for most people, but he still left. 
He didn't have enough time for his family or pursuing his own passions or his own interests. So even the highest paid people, right, they don't want to be part of the system. They don't want to work a job for someone else that, you know, ultimately leaves them feeling alienated. And again, you know, goes back to all the different ways we're alienated from the product to how we work, our own human nature, and our fellow coworkers. And I just think it makes so much sense, right? And when you think about these highly paid, highly respected people leaving their jobs because they finally have enough money to do so, right? That just that tells you a lot about the system that we're currently operating under. So big idea number three, religion is the opiate of the masses. Now, this is one of the most controversial ones because Karl Marx did not believe that God existed. He was an atheist. He was a strong enemy of religion, particularly Christianity, but all forms of religion. And he wrote, quote, religious suffering is at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Now, to expand on what he's saying here, Karl Marx believed that capitalism was miserable for most people, right? Not the bourgeoisie, not the business owners and the rich people. It's pretty good for them. But when you look at the 99%, Right. These are people that are essentially wage slaves. They are, you know, again, goes back to what we have been talking about. Right. We are alienated from our jobs. We are essentially forced laborers. Right. Very similar to the medieval serfs. Right. If we don't work, we starve to death. And. Right. Then we're talking about, well, living this miserable existence. How can we cope with it? How do we cope with being wage slaves with no opportunity to escape and, you know, being poor and exploited and making someone else rich? How do we cope? Well, Marx believed that religion came in to essentially become a painkiller, right? Oh, your life sucks? Well, life is supposed to suck, right? Worry about heaven. And he believed that this is ultimately the role of Christianity in Europe, but also religion as a whole across human civilization. And it's just such an interesting idea because as we have come away from, you know, miserable conditions of life, right? You know, even for poor people in the working class, right? Life is still better today than it was. You know, people are coming away from religion, right? Is it not logical to ask ourselves maybe the reason that religion was prevalent in the first place was because it essentially operated as a painkiller to the misery of our own existence, right? And again, it's just a coping mechanism to distract us from our pain that we feel by being exploited, by being wage slaves, by being alienated from our own human nature and our jobs and, you know, and essentially to make someone else rich, right? You think about all the Amazon workers, you know, they live pretty rough lives. They work really hard. And and then there's Jeff Bezos, who's like a gazillionaire. The dude makes like, you know, I don't know how much money. The dude's just rich, right? I think he, I forget, I read somewhere that he makes like $1,300 a second, right? Let's think about that. $1,300 a second. I mean, 
a minute could pass and he makes more than some people make in a year, right? That's, that's wild. So Marx believed that workers waste their entire lives in these miserable factories to make the owner rich. Ultimate exploitation, the entire system was set up this way, right? For those same business owners. It's not set up for the, for the worker. And then he actually, you know, we've already compared modern capitalism to medieval Europe a little bit. But when you think about the role of religion, right, it doesn't just play a big role in capitalism, but it also played a very big role in feudalism, right? Because again, similarly, we essentially, you know, the working class worked the means of production, right? They worked the land. For the most part, that was farm labor. So you were out in the fields, you were planting, growing, you know, harvesting, while the nobility, you know, the people that owned the land sat around and hung out and wrote books and had a good old time, right? They were just living their best lives. And then there were the people that created the food and created, you know, all the necessities of life that made it possible for those elites to sit around and do what they do. So life was pretty miserable for the medieval serf. And both in medieval Europe and modern industrial capitalism, Marx would argue that religion is just this coping mechanism, right? It's the same way it was back then as it is today. It distracts people from the misery of their own existence. That, you know, we should be more worried about heaven, right? This afterlife that no one can prove exists. That's what we should really be worried about. Not the misery that we feel every day. You know, whether it's harvesting crops for a medieval, you know, nobility or working for your business owner. So big idea number four is the idea of class conflict. So essentially it goes like this, right? There are the owners and then there are the workers and their interests are diametrically opposed. The business owner wants to make as much of a profit as they possibly can. And they know that, right, the consumer will only pay so much, right? You can't offer a pair of shoes for $12,000 because no one's going to pay for it. So what does that mean? You have to offer it at the maximum price that you can, right? R- roughly around $60. But where do you get the next profit from? Well, how do you increase your profit? The only way to do it is to make the shoe cheaper, right? Create it more efficiently. And generally that means that you want to pay your workers as little as humanly possible. And that goes against what the worker wants, right? The worker wants to do the least amount of work for the most pay as possible. And this is the basis of class conflict. These two, the owner, the business, uh, the business owner and the worker diametrically opposed. And they're, they're never going to get along on this, right? They're a source of a lot of conflict in society. And this idea is actually pretty interesting because it was only really discovered uh, by Karl Marx. So this is a quote from a speech given by Engels at Marx's graveside. And Engels said, quote, Just as Darwin discovered the law of development or organic nature, so Marx discovered the law of development of human history. The simple fact hitherto concealed by an overgrowth of ideology that mankind must first of all eat, drink, have shelter and clothing before it can pursue politics, science, art, religion, etc. 
And this idea is very powerful because there's a big distinction between the people who do politics and science and art and then the people that provide food and clothing and drinking water for everyone else, right? And again, it just goes back to the owner versus the worker. But if you go back and you look at pretty much any point throughout human history, you're going to see this dynamic playing out. You're going to see there being some kind of owner class that pretty much has everything. And there's going to be everyone else that pretty much does all the work, right? You can go back to ancient Rome, right? They, well, back then they were slaves, a lot of the people that did the work. And then there were the people that didn't do the work, right? The owners, you know, you go back to medieval Europe, there were the serfs, did all the work. And then there were the owners. Well, there, there they were the nobility. So in order for humanity to survive, we are going to need to do this work, right? But it's not going to stop at food and shelter and water, right? Like we have enough to live, but we still want more. We continue to work, right? We want more luxuries and comfort and everything else. And that means we're going to produce a lot of surplus wealth. And Marx argued that this surplus wealth is essentially funneled to the very top of society, right? All of it. And that pretty much leaves the working class, you know, poor people with next to nothing. Now, he argued that the only way to understand capitalism was through history, right? Why did this system come to be the way it is? Why does all the surplus wealth in society instantly go to the top? Well, he actually developed his own theory of history to explain it all. Right, so I'm sure you guys know if you're watching this channel that there have been two big theories of history. There is the great man theory that, you know, you have one great person, they come along and they change history, right? It can, that can be Winston Churchill or Hitler or Alexander the Great or, you know, anyone that's, you know, big and important in history. And then there's the trends and forces theory. And they more or less say that, you know, certain events change and, you know, there are things that go into motion and then people start doing this and it creates an opportunity for, you know, this to happen, right? And then the great men who rise to the top that, you know, the people that we all know, they are simply the people that took advantage of the trends and forces. Well, Karl Marx said, screw all that nonsense. I've got my own theory of history. And surprisingly enough, it is actually fairly coherent. It's actually a pretty popular school of thought even today. And this is the materialist conception of history. Now, Marx's theory of history is a little tricky because there are a lot of these philosophically loaded words that come into play that, you know, you just really need to understand the background on to understand what the heck Marx is talking about. So the first one is materialism. So materialism is the idea that all physical matter, right, is, is ultimately all there is, right? Like there is no spirituality or, you know, God or whatever else, right? It's just stuff. You know, even when you look at ideas, right, they are simply, you know, a, a result of our brains, you know, releasing certain neurochemicals, right? You get some dopamine or serotonin when you have, you know, one of these big fancy ideas, right? You come up with communism, bam, hit a dopamine. That's how it goes. And then it combines this idea with the Hegelian dialectic. Now, the best way to understand the dialectic is to understand Hegel's theory of it. 
So Hegel believed that there were fundamentally three parts. Hegel's theory goes something like this. So there is the thesis. This is the current state of affairs the way it is right now. Then there's the antithesis. Some kind of opposition, a movement for change, right? Something like that. And then it changes the thesis and it becomes a synthesis, right? There is this new reality that is created as a result of combining the old with the new. And it's influenced by both, right? And this idea applies to a lot. Right now, when Hegel was thinking about it, he applied it to ideas, right? He applied it specifically to philosophy, but Marx, he's much different because he applies it to material, right? The the physical world that we exist in. So to think of some examples, we can think about the American Revolution, right? So there is the thesis, and the thesis is, you know, the 13 colonies, right? The thing that exists as it is right now, right? Then there's the antithesis, right? The opposition, the change. And it comes in, right? You can think of, you know, maybe the founding fathers, maybe the idea of freedom or liberty, right? Well, you know, depending on how patriotic you are. And this antithesis comes in, it changes the thesis, and then there is a new synthesis, right? And that is, you know, the 13 colonies becomes the United States of America, an independent country, uh, independent of the UK and Britain and all that, right? Freedom. And this dynamic plays itself out with everything, right? Every change in history can be thought of in this dialectical way. Okay, so now that we understand what dialectical materialism is, let's apply it to another example here, right? Let's think about feudalism, right? This is one that Marx talked a lot about. So feudalism would be the thesis, right? The way things were. Then there was industrialization, the big change. Then, as a result, there is, well, 19th century Europe, right? Things change, and, you know, that's more or less where things led. Now, what has to be the most interesting part about this dialectical materialism is that it's essentially been proven, or at least partially validated, by a lot of modern research, right? So you think about uh, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, right? That was a really popular book, very scientific in its nature, and Diamond more or less argued that the reason Europe thrived as a continent and a civilization had more to do with the environment than it did, you know, Europeans being born naturally superior to everyone else, right? When you look at uh, the way the cultures interacted with each other, um, a lot of the way agriculture was done, right? I mean, you compare... Uh, European civilization to, right, let's take the nomadic hunter-gatherers of the Eurasian steppe, right? A lot of those people, I mean, they did not settle down for a very long time. You know, they just stuck with their horses and they lived their life the way they they went about it. And, you know, that was really a result of their environment. It's not because, you know, the Asian and Turkish nomads were stupid it's because they just didn't settle down into civilization they said you know i'd rather stick with my tribe where you know we ride around on horses and we beat people up and take their shit right it's a pretty nice lifestyle and european civilization is very starkly contrasted with that right you look at the way that europe is geographically and there are just a lot of advantages right it's very similar if you can farm and produce food and wheat and everything in France, 
you can pretty much take that exact formula and recreate it in Poland or Hungary or, you know, pretty much wherever else, right? It's a very similar environment, most of those places, and that allows for more cultural transfers, right? Different you know, communications and people can expand on each other's ideas and working together. And it's really great, right? It's just a wonderful system that basically allowed Europe to dominate the whole world, right? More or less. Uh, bear in mind, that is a gross oversimplification of it all, but I think it is at least halfway accurate. But that is going to be it for the episode. Thank you so much for listening all the way through. If you guys want more episodes like this, little tidbits, deep dives on uh, historical books, events, people, you know, just little one-off episodes like this, make sure to follow History for Thinkers Notes wherever you get your podcast feed. Thank you so much, and I will see you in the next one. Peace out.